Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. Our guest today is one of our favorite writers, Dylan Levi King. Welcome, Dylan. Welcome. Thank you. So Dylan has written a fantastic article on North Korean environmentalism called Environmentalism in One Country, which we recently printed. And so he also had some very interesting ideas in the area of nationalist environmental policy for Japan, which are connected to his environmentalism in one country thesis. And of course, you live in Japan. Um, so we're going to talk more about that as well. But before we get started, I want to say a little bit more about Palladium. Um, we started Palladium magazine to explore the future of governance and how the future of governance is going to escape comprehension by the dominant liberal modernist paradigm, as you might call it. So what comes after liberalism? How can we thrive in that world? Palladium does journalism, analysis, and visionary theory around the world to shed light on those questions. So our flagship, of course, is the quarterly print magazine that we do, which compiles our best articles on specific themes with beautiful custom art. So our latest is Palladium 7 on Garden Planet, which includes exclusive interviews with Isabel Bomeke and Stuart Brand and a visionary photo shoot by Brian Ziff. Those are really new things for us. Palladium 7 is... is in many ways, the best one yet. So we're really excited about that uh, coming up this month. And so we send the print magazine out to all our members as a token of gratitude for making the whole project possible. So we want to invite you, the podcast listener, to become a member and support our work, receive the print magazine, and get invited to all our parties and events. So check it out at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. So with that out of the way, I want to get back into it with Dylan here. So Dylan, let's start with the core thesis of your article, which is environmentalism in one country, which is that, as I understood it, the independent powers of the future are going to have to have some kind of regional environmental management built into their core ideologies. So you used North Korea as the core example, which is kind of fun. It's a fun example. Um, this and, and the way they do things environmental with, with their environmentalism is very different from both the kind of globalist uh, environmentalism consensus and and very different from our stereotypes of sort of a rapacious rogue state. Um, so why don't we start with a short summary of your thesis? So Dylan, I'd love to hear from you. How do you understand this idea of environmentalism in one country? Sure. I mean, um, I guess it basically it starts with comprehending the idea of socialism in one country. Right. Um, which is, you know, goes back to uh, to a tension in the communist world over whether you could have a socialist state, um, whether or not you needed to have a global revolution for socialism to work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a debate between Trotsky and Stalin. Trotsky saying we need to uh, basically have a global uh, communist socialist system. And Stalin saying, uh, don't worry about that. We got it. Um, so that, that idea is basically transferred over to environmentalism. The idea that right. you... And, and in a particular context, there was the Soviet Union, right? Like this was, this was the debate about whether the Soviet Union could kind of implement socially domestically or, right. or whether it had to kind of continue to export revolution to work at all. Yeah, basically Trotsky said, um, if you don't, keep exporting revolution, eventually the capitalist system is just going to wash you away or you're going to sell out to it. So that, that idea is sort of here um, put into a, an environmental uh, idea where d the question is, do you need a 
um, a global project or can you have environmentalism in one country? And Korea, um, since they, their political philosophy is basically Stalinism plus, um, their environmentalism also matches that. And of course, they're also cut out of the global economy anyways. They're, they're sort of forced to uh, have self-reliance. So just looking at, um, at North Korea and looking at what they do with environmentalism and why they do environmentalism, you see something that's completely different from basically what everybody else does. Um, their environmentalism is just for themselves, just for the Korean people. Um, it's, it's out of uh, survival because they, they're autarkic by, uh, not by choice necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and so this is, this is kind of this interesting question. Like, why are we looking to North Korea as this environmental implicitly kind of an example of something maybe we should be considering otherwise? Because in North, North Korea is usually considered to be a basket case. And, and it is in particular environmentally, like they have, they have very serious deforestation problems and, 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 uh, you know, flooding and famines, you know, we're all familiar with the North Korean famines. Um, so like, why, why does that make them actually a good example to talk about with this idea? Sure. I mean, I guess something should be said about the, about the history and, and, uh, -huh. uh it's, you know, North Korea wasn't naturally, uh, a barren wasteland. That's right. something that happened over <laughs> centuries, you know, starting in the, the late 17th, early 18th century. There's a population explosion in Korea. Mm -hmm. um, a, a basically, a century later, you have uh, the Japanese taking over and turning it into a source of raw materials for their imperial core. And once the war starts in the 1940s, all of that wood is turned into charcoal and lumber to support the war effort. Mm -hmm. A couple of years later, you've got the Korean War, where basically all sorts of things are flattened. Everybody is grabbing whatever they can to burn for fuel. Um, so they're basically starting from less than zero in the 1950s. And part of the, the legitimacy of the regime uh, of Kim Il-sung was based on the idea that he would bring back the forests, mm -hmm. that um, he was going to restore that. And it was uh, a nationalist project and an anti-imperialist project. And, uh, you know, Kim, Kim Jong-il sort of, sort of goes off the track there, basically undoing all of the efforts that um, his father had done mm -hmm. in the 1950s and 1960s. And once again, cranking up the deforestation and basically running the country ragged, increasing agricultural quotas and um, light industry, just running the economy on red and cutting down all the trees. And that unfortunately happens right before the Soviet Union collapses. Uh -huh. And then there's no source of, of Soviet energy or Soviet fertilizer. So, and then right after that, you have uh, years of drought and um, uh, all those hillsides that have been deforested are have you know flash floods ripping down them and the country's basically turned back to to where it was in in uh 1946 
and so Kim uh, Kim Jong Un is once again sort of trying to reinvent that, uh, get his grandfather's uh, spirit and base his legitimacy on environmentalism. And again, there's there's no choice of importing cheap raw materials from outside or outsourcing manufacturing or or heavy industry or anything like that. Um, so that's sort of the context right. uh, well, that it's in. What I found interesting was was also like before the Juche regime, um, your article started out with the example of obviously the Japanese empire. And like you said, they when they came in, the place had already kind of been deforested. There were these issues like, like you were mentioning, kind of a population explosion um, late 18th and, and 19th century. And... And so when the Japanese came in, they also had this kind of environmental legitimacy angle to the thing. Like their imperialism was superior and it was it was bringing civilization specifically. It was bringing like good environmental management of the forests and so on. And so the Japanese were planting forests before they deforested the place for the war effort and so on. They were they were themselves trying out kind of this this uh, regional environmental approach. Right, uh, because they had sort of done the same thing in their own country. Right. Of uh, there was a population explosion, and uh, you know you've got the beginnings of capitalism, uh, cutting down the forests, and um, in the Meiji, the Japanese sent so many scholars to Europe, mm-hmm. and they picked up on this idea in of ecology, which was prevalent in Europe since, you know, the, the late 1600s. Um, there's a guy called John Evelyn who wrote a book called Silva, which is, um, he's addressing King Charles II and saying, you need to build up magazines of timber for the, uh, for your kingdoms and saying, and, and very clearly connecting of forestry to state power and also forestry to culture and um, sort of civilization. And yeah. that those ideas get picked up by the, by the Japanese who are going to, you know, the new forestry schools in Saxony or uh, the National Forest Academy in, in France. And they come back to Japan and they see, oh, uh, our country is, is, a, is a basket case. Look, we, we don't have any trees. We need to bring our trees back. So start frantically replanting Japanese forests along a scientific uh, method. Mm-hmm. And then they go to Korea. And Korea is, it, they're, they're bringing civilization to Korea by saying, you, you Koreans have cut down all your trees. You, well, that's why your civilization is trash and why you've been colonized by uh, the mm-hmm. superior Japanese. But also using Korea as a source of, of raw materials to offset um, what they can't cut down in mm. their home islands anymore. Yeah, so th- that's really interesting. Like the the idea of kind of the magazine of timber, the 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 forests being this connected to this imperial power thing. So specifically in the European context, I know that English shipbuilding and like the English sort of naval power was very tied in with its ability to kind of. They, they grew these big oak forests and they would mature over over hundreds of years uh, or, or over about a hundred years before they would 
sort of harvest them. And, and there's still, my understanding is there's still these forests that are planted basically for, for naval purposes. Like they, they produce timber for boats that are um, still being managed in, in that right. way. Though obviously the Navy has moved away from, from timber, but, but I think there are, you know, when people build wooden boats, they still draw on these forests. And then you have these other things like um, where I'm from, British Columbia, British Columbia was kind of known for its enormous trees and its enormous timber wealth. And, and that was, that was actually very, uh, that was part of, uh, the power of, of the British Navy was like, they had the best masts, the best like spar poles and so on from these huge straight, um, hemlocks and cedars and Douglas firs from British Columbia. So, so like the, the trees being kind of part of imperial power is sort of this theme that goes on through these different uh, powers in history. And it's, it sort of picked up in the United States around the same time. The first forestry schools, like the Yale Forest School, are started in basically the same time as, as the, the Japanese scholars are coming back from Europe. Uh, scholars are returning to the United States, um, like what's his name, Pinchot, who was the, the guy who worked with Theodore Roosevelt on the building the park system. He's also trained in in the same schools in, in Europe and returns back with a, with a message that we need to protect the forests mm-hmm. for reasons other than they're beautiful. It's because of they can give us power and it's a good resource. Right. And so, so back to the North Korea example, we have this example of a society that's kind of in some ways gone to the limit of what happens when you destroy the forests. And, uh, and, and then maybe that's why it's a good example, right? It's, it goes, they, they deforest the land and now they've got these flash floods. They've got, you know, their, their, their agricultural land is being washed away. They can't grow anything. You know, I don't know if the droughts were fully related to the, the deforestation, but it certainly can't help if, if there's no soil and trees to maintain the moisture like I know the, these, these uh, kind of biomes create their own microclimates. And, and so, so deforestation can really cause a lot of problems. And of course, you know, in any human civilization, ultimately you have to feed the humans. The, the humans have to have somewhere to live. They need the wood, they need the resources. And so management of these environmental resources actually is this thing that's incredibly important to national or imperial power this isn't something we usually think about it's usually we're thinking about like oh we have so much power now we can we can kind of maintain this uh this environment off to the side that we're not using that's separate from us and and it's totally this kind of conservationist ethos like maybe we don't want to just destroy everything and replace it with this this unnatural unbiological human order but actually like what's interesting about the north korea case is it says no what if when you really take that idea to the limit and you go crazy with it, you find that, no, you actually do need the, the trees for more than just kind of their beauty or more than just the sentimental value. Um, and, and so for that reason, because it's a society pushed up against the limit, it, it kind of develops a more, a more practical uh, engagement with these things. And, and that's, so I think that's, that's what I saw in this in this article that you wrote. It was like why I thought it was interesting, is because North Korea is this it's pushed up so close against reality that they 
they're forced to develop new ideas. Right. And, and um, you know, North Korea is also a, you know, we, it's an industrialized, modern country. Uh-huh. Uh, most of the criticism of this sort of global environmental governance um, suggests grassroots um, radical democracy. It's led by indigenous movements mm-hmm. who want... Um, some sort of sovereignty within a larger system, whereas North Korea more clearly can be used as a model. It's a it's a country. There's a there's a state that mm-hmm. can make decisions. There's a there's some small private uh, economy even within North Korea. So it, it's it sort of serves as a better model than, you know, um, like a Brazilian indigenous movement. Yeah. Well, didn't we have some joke the other day that uh, North Korean Juche is the only example of uh, sort of an eco-indigenous movement with nuclear weapons? Right. I guess it's the only nuclear-armed indigenous movement, indigenous people's movement. Right. Which is is sort of true, I think. (laughs) I mean, the the Juche idea is is really um, sort of appealing, you know, it, it's based on the idea that humanity is the central force. It really breaks with, with Marxist materialism. It puts the human at the center, and it says that humans or the, uh, the working class has the ability and the responsibility to not only shape history in a struggle against the exploiting class, but also to struggle and shape nature itself. Everything comes down to a human-centered approach, which is, I think, quite different from um, what you see in maybe the, the Western environmentalist movement, mm-hmm. where it was sort of the, the intention is to take uh, humanity sort of out of it to some extent, to make right. these sort of yeah, spaces. leave nature alone. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's also sort of a, a, a promising thing. Uh, so I'm encouraging everyone to study the Juche idea. Right. <laughs> we'll have to do more articles on North Korea. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating example. Uh, so you had this great term in the article that I want to touch on a little bit, which is nationalist eco-theology, to sort of describe some of how that North Korean ideology works. Um, in particular, you know, the, there's sort of these pre-communist animist mythologies of of the forest and and... Uh, sort of uh, this this proto uh, proto eco theology of, of of like how the how the, the the pine trees in particular relate to the Korean people and uh, you know the spirits of the land and so on and then and then as the communists come in uh, Kim Il Sung draws on some of this uh, eco theology you called it and and uses that to sort of legitimate himself. Like he's this mountain man, you know, he's born in the North. He comes out of the mountains and, and his, his guerrilla movement kind of exists in the trees and eats, eats sort of pine sap and, right. and, and pine tea. And, and he's so going on. to he's shoot able... pine cones at the advancing Japanese, according to the, to the legend. Uh, right. He can turn the pine cones into bullets. Right. Or right. Um, and that's, that's, that's 
something that I think people would 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 write off and say, well, that that couldn't be a factor. But it's so embedded in in everything Kim Il Sung writes and all of the mythology. It's all about the trees and the pines, especially, and being a guardian of the land. That it that it can't be written off, and you 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 can see it not only in North Korea, but also in in South Korea. South Korea undergoes sort of the same process of. Um, environment, a nationalist environmentalism. And they also adopt some of the same ideas because that idea is so embedded. The idea that the, that the Koreans are the people of the trees, that they're, that they're fed by the trees and clothed by mm -hmm. the trees and nourished by the trees. And that's something that um, on both sides of the, of the parallel, they adopt. I think the, in North Korea, they, they adopt it uh, with much more enthusiasm. It sort of becomes key and uh, I think that's another that's another lesson I think to uh, to learn that um, that eco theology, if it's missing, um, there's really nothing because the alternative the alternative is 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 a narrative of a, sort of a homogenous humanity. Everybody is united together all around the world. We need to. Um, do this project because of the flooding in Pakistan right now. We need to do this project because there's there's plastic in the ocean. And all this brotherhood of man will unite against this threat, this this other, mm -hmm. which which isn't really a an, an idea that motivates anyone. Nobody um, really cares one way or another about um, that sort of framing. This uh, this framing that that that's in use since. Uh, basically 1972 when they have their first UN conference on the human environment in Stockholm and and continues on through the you know through the present with the 2030 sustainable development goals that that narrative doesn't work that you need you need something that's why the indigenous movements have their own that's why their own eco theology which is very potent and and will motivate people to protect their land you know these you know, you have Micmac water guardians and um, indigenous right. people and in the in the north of Canada. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, it, it, it's more like the the local environment. It's the local region. It's not this kind of global abstraction. Like this is this big difference that I think is being highlighted in this article. Is this kind of you know, you, like I, I think I mentioned earlier, you've kind of got this global consensus view of things, which is I think what what you're characterizing here. The, the kind of the human environment, UN, sort of 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, World Economic Forum view of the environment, which has really been about kind of, again, kind of limiting human industrial potential, removing man from the environment, having this very abstract version of humanity, this very abstract version of the environment. Um, and, and, and sort of what we're kind of contrasting it with here is this much more local regional thing whereas you have a particular people their particular base of power includes their land and they have to maintain their land as that particular base of power so it's a sort of like interesting nationalist um play against the against this kind of global uh view of environmentalism so i'm, I'm interested in like how much that that kind of regional national uh kind of eco theology can be generalized to other environmental contexts like we've we've you know we've talked about this korean example you maybe talked about you know a couple other of these these uh local indigenous type of movements but 
where how do we see that kind of unfolding does this does that get uh is it applicable elsewhere is it like a an alternate paradigm for for how things could be thought about in general right i've i've thought about that a lot like what would uh american eco theology look like uh it would it would almost by necessity be very uh decentralized right. you know you'd have a uh, an eco theology of the uh, of the mountain west and eco theology of the mm -hmm. of the of the northeast and even broken up in there um but if you go back to like john evelyn and and uh, those writers on forestry in the in the in the you know the early years they they do espouse a sort of eco theology it's not just about about state power they are um, uh, Evelyn was a, was a Catholic, I believe, and uh, don't quote me on that. But um, anyways, all of their work is 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 infused as as all of the uh, the thinkers of that time were with with um, with Christian imagery and um, and and theology, a theology in a, in, in a non ecological sense. So why is that? Like you know, you might you might think, oh well why don't we just approach this whole environmental thing as kind of a systems management, very materialist view. It's just like kind of applying industrialized agriculture methods and, and thinking to these, these kind of other in ecological services, these other environmental processes that we depend on. You know, it's like, oh, we've got this, we've got this bee problem. You know, the bees, bee population is collapsing or we've got this flooding problem because we, we, we ripped out all the trees. So, you know, are we just, why not just apply kind of a materialist uh, industrial mode of thinking to to replant those trees and, and manage those bee populations and, and, and do whatever? Why, why specifically does this end up kind of taking on this spiritual angle, this theological angle? I, I don't know the answer to that. It, it seems like something that feels natural, but at the same time, it feels like you could just totally take a materialist approach to this. I, I'm just curious for your take on that. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't say I have an answer either. Um, but it does seem it does seem natural, and it's something that that um, gives energy and motivation to all environmental successful environmental projects that are outside of this sort of global environmental uh, governance idea, um, whether it's indigenous people or um, like. There's a thinker called Ashish Kotari, who's uh, from India, who writes about sort of a radical ecological democracy based on um, ideas from sort of folk religion and and local culture, and and then in the Korean context too, of course. And I mean, the, it's I don't have an answer, but it, it does seem the only natural way because I guess. I guess when you're when you're getting into these questions of value in complex systems where you do have to kind of the, the natural approach to a complex system is often not something that can be planned out and and just totally kind of managed in that materialist uh, industrial mode. It's more something that has to be respected. It has to be nurtured. You have to come at it with as much more organic approach to things. And when when you're sort of coming at things with that perspective, it's almost a little bit more anthropomorphized and in practice not necessarily you don't necessarily have to think about it that way but i think in practice you you do end up thinking about it that way you th you think about it in terms of like what does it need what does it want 
what's good for it and and uh, you know what what dialogue are we having with it these are kind of the the natural modes of engaging with a complex adaptive system like your your ecology and i guess the thing is you know you're also talking about sort of the normative examples we should do it this way we should relate to it in this way and i guess it's just like psychologically it's very easy for that to kind of um coalesce into this this almost spiritualist pattern where it's it's like oh well we we relate to the land in this way we pay respect to the land in this way we kind of follow these taboos in how we uh engage with the land because it's that's what's good for the land or the land will will go bad and 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 destroy us if we if we don't act in that way i mean these are these are getting very close to uh sort of theological or animistic kind of thinking so i can see how that 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 connection gets drawn in any case um but i wanted to kind of bridge this over to another conversation we had recently and an, another particular context to where this kind of thinking can be applied so we had this interesting conversation recently about uh well you live in japan so and and you have kind of an eye for what japan is doing and might do differently and i I remember you I asked you this question like how can Japan be saved what what could Japan do differently that could fix its demographic and geopolitical problems and and you had some pretty wild ideas on that that I thought were were interesting and in particular touched on the the issue of whale conservation uh and and like Japan's particular nationalist eco theology or what it might be um so I'd love to hear kind of your thinking maybe maybe I'll throw you the big question which is just like what's your program for how to fix Japan uh kind of colored by this paradigm a little bit but but I'd love to hear just start with that and then we can dig into kind of the the this this whaling issue that that came up in particular there mm yeah first I'll say I mean when I when I first came to Japan I was I was very convinced that there was something uh deeply wrong that needed to be fixed and and now i'm sort of of the opinion that the way to fix it is just to to close the doors and let it be because it's it's just fine but just let it be but um on my long list of of items in a program to fix japan whale was on there and that that's not an original idea that's something that's motivated the japanese right wing for a long time um again this this actually goes back to 1972 and the Stockholm conference on the human environment that's when you have people talking about saving the whale mm-hmm. that's when you have the first proposition that we need to have a moratorium on whaling well wasn't that there wasn't there something in the 30s as well and of course yeah, of course yeah, that yeah. was all ignored because it was right before right, the war right, but the, right like nazi germany and and imperial japan both ignored their uh it was a league of nations uh uh geneva convention on on whaling or whatever it's called um but but yeah that's it sort of regained heat in the in the 70s and mm-hmm. you had a a big movement uh you know your friend Stuart Brand was was mm-hmm. was involved in in save the whale stuff uh-huh. um uh but basically once they got it going it was 1982 when they had a a a zero catch quota for basically all like baleen or or toothed whales 
Um, and the, the Japanese saw that, well, not all Japanese, but like the pro whaling camp and the fisheries industry and conservatives saw that as a basically a globalist conspiracy. Um, it, there was there was a, a theory that Richard Nixon had done it to to win votes in California. Um, there's a letter at the, the Nixon Library about um, him demanding that they save the whales. And actually, um, the Japanese fisheries uh, lobby came under the influence of Lyndon LaRouche uh -huh. in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, LaRouche had uh, something called the Wide Use Movement, which was sort of an anti-environmentalist um, program. And it was it was picked up very enthusiastically in Japan. But anyways, the, the, the wider idea is that it's an example of um, Japanese culture that's being suppressed. Uh, Japanese whaling has a, has a long history. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really industrial whaling until the Americans and the Norwegians gave them the technology. But uh, all along the coast, there's whaling communities. They've sort of shut down and it's sort of a symbol of, of Japan's decline because it's it's given up its culture. Mm -hmm. And and the other, the most important thing is this, is that is that Japan can't feed itself. At its at its present population, it's impossible. Um, well, I mean it, it's not impossible, but it's it's much more difficult. They they import almost all of their food. Um, 80% of wheat, 100% of corn, 90% of soybeans, uh, 60% of beef, and and all the beef that's that's uh, actually produced here is just fed on American hay and 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 corn. So um, so whaling sort of covers two things of of sort of because after the war, basically um, eighty percent of the of the protein of the meat protein was coming from whale because there was, the the economy was quite in quite a bad state. So they were living off of whale and uh, American wheat. So, so it was actually a pretty big thing. Like, uh, like sort of the, the natural question with this whaling thing is: isn't this just some kind of reactionary pettiness? Like, oh, you know, you used to hunt whales. Now the you know the the big American doesn't let you hunt whales anymore. Like, it, but it actually doesn't matter because it's only a few whales and it's not really helping you. But what you're the the point here is is like this actually was a fairly large part of of Japanese food, uh, the food structure. In Japan, yeah, especially during during the war and immediately after, um, it, it really was, and it's something that people actually care about who are not just uh, right wing cranks. Uh -huh. um, there's, there's, they still sell whale. I mean, the the market is, the, the is declining because kids didn't grow up eating whale, but people you know over the age of sixty um, grew up eating it, and it's still like part of their culture. It would be like. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not like quite like making the Americans give up beef right. because it was sort of a sort of a, a survival food in the war and the post-war period. Yeah, but, of course, I people mean, are talking about that and, and other people are very mad about it. <laughs> so, right. right. So, OK, that, that's a good example or a good a good analogy. Right. As a, right. a, a whale is the uh, Japanese equivalent of beef. <laughs> right. But um, and so, the, so the whaling sort of solves two things of of weaning Japan off of foreign food imports mm -hmm. so it can sort of be somewhat sovereign. It doesn't need to depend 
on the United States. Because the United States, it, it doesn't really matter. The bases in Okinawa and, and um, elsewhere don't really matter as much as the fact that they import um, so much of their food from the United States or, or American allies. They, they feed them. They could crush Japan in a day. They wouldn't need to drop any bombs on them this time. Um, so it sort of solves the problem of, the, of, of food, and it solves the problem of uh, cultural decline, the sense that, that the Japanese have become sort of mm, un-Japanese, that they've become Americanized, that they, mm -hmm. that they are not in touch with that. Uh, authentic but is that, culture. Is that just some kind of surface feature? Like, you, you know, cultures change over time. Uh, often you get these stories of, of like this particular uh, feature of the culture changing is like total disaster. It constitutes decline. If we reversed it, you know, everything would, would be great again. But isn't that, isn't that just like um, a surface feature? Like if, if Japan started eating meat again, they would still have all these other cultural problems would they would they start having kids again would they would they you know would they stop uh watching weird porn like would they would they listen uh, uh let, let, what's the connection there how, how does that become a bigger issue right i mean it, if you look at something like diet um i think it's it's deeply important i think it's deeply important that that people um are eating uh imported American wheat and corn right. and have completely changed the way that, that meals are served and prepared. Uh, I think it's a sort of small part that comes along with, with other changes, but it's, it's an important part. Um, you know, the Japanese have protected rice. That's the only thing. The rice, they don't, they don't really import any rice because they want to protect the local rice growers. But at the same time, the diet has shifted to wheat. So everybody's eating more wheat than, than rice. So the, the rice is sometimes being fed to pigs and, and cattle as feed. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that is a question is, would it be enough? But uh -huh. I mean, this is sort of part of a larger project of, you know, as we talked about, we talked about the the whale hemisphere. Right. What? Well, yeah. So we're going we're going much further than just uh, having yeah, we're not just you know, talking whale about on the whales. menu. So so this brings us to to of course the obvious problem with eating whales is where are all the whales going to come from? Like you you eat the whales and then there aren't any whales left. Like you, there's a reason people were talking about saving the whales is because the whales actually needed to be saved. They were going to be wiped out. Um, a lot of these populations of whales used to be absolutely immense, and now they're tiny. Um, or the, and, and at their bottom, they were even smaller. Um, you know, they're, they're recovering in some of these cases because the whaling has stopped. And so, you know, when you first suggested this, of course, I was extremely offended. I was like, that all sounds great, but this whale thing, you know, we're going to have to nuke Japan again if we start with that because, the, you know, you, you, can't, you can't just eat the whales until they're extinct. So, but then, you know, as we got talking about it, uh, there's this question of, well, could the whale fisheries be made sustainable by accelerating the growth of whales or, or, or feeding the whales or farming the whales or something in that area? And so you, I, I understand that you looked into some of that stuff and, and you're not the only one. There have been other studies coming out of Japan of what, what sort of farming the whales might look like. Um, so I'd love to hear more about like how could we actually or how could we actually imagine uh, a Japan that eats whales and is is sort of expansionary 
and it doesn't just crash and burn when they run out of whales. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, we, uh, we, we both uh, discovered a, an Arthur C. Clarke novel from 1957 called The Deep Range, where he imagines a world where the, you know, the southern oceans are full of whales and they're herded by orcas who are ridden by um, shepherds and there's plankton farming and um, it's, it's, it's beautiful until um, there's a, a sort of a, a coup by a Buddhist leader who forces them to stop eating meat. Um, but in Japan, it's, it's sort of been ideas about um, farming whales have been sort of on a smaller scale, sort of out of necessity. Whales need such a, um, a massive range, like the ones that people would like to eat. Um, you can you can get a couple dolphins in a in a cove and look after them there, but um, what you would need to do is basically have. Unfortunately, with with the the current legal, you know, it, it stretching out into international waters, it would be it would be very difficult. So you'd almost have to have Japan um, lay claim to vast stretches of the of the southern oceans. At which point, you know, that it would be kind of doable. You would farm plankton and and feed it to them. You would um, use sort of scientific methods to figure out how many you could harvest uh, each year. I mean, in a way, it's what Japan did before 2019. They had, um, they did scientific um, exploitation of the whales. They would they would grab maybe a, a thousand, a couple hundred year to year depending on on the on the conditions uh, under the cover of scientific research but they were actually eating them mm -hmm. and it would be sort of an extension of that you know since 2009 they've 2019 they've left the international whaling commission so they've re begun the commercial hunts again mm -hmm. and they argue that it is sustainable they argue that um whale populations have um of the ones that they want to harvest have come back and the situation is sort of much different than like in the, the 19th or 20th century where there was massive exploitation of the whales. Their, their argument is that it's already sustainable. Add in a little bit of plankton farming and you're there. You've got a, you've got a food source. So how would that plankton farming work? I'm just curious about the technicals here. Like, you know, we, we sort of understand how, how a, a, you know, a bison range or a cat or cattle range kind of works the you know the, the 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 grass eats the sunshine the cow eats the grass the man eats the cow right um with with the whale food chain how can that be accelerated or or augmented you know there, you have this plankton isn't the plankton just wild is there any way to fertilize it uh sure like, you like can, you can grow the you could grow the plankton inland or on the coast and basically uh distribute it through um, whale pods out in the southern oceans. I mean, you'd, you'd have to have sort of an Arthur C. Clarke uh, uh, situation where you have either submarines or or orcas to to go out and, and <laughs> do that. But I mean, the, the Japanese have solved um, bigger problems than this, so I, I think they can they'll they'll sort out the technical stuff. Yeah, I mean, like you could imagine. Uh, I mean, especially in connection to another. Um, article that got printed 
in Podium 7 with, along with your article, uh, the article about geoengineering and in particular um, how we could use iron fertilization to cause big plankton blooms or, or algae blooms in the ocean, which would, which would draw down carbon. It would be carbon negative. And, and the interesting thing about this is it actually boosts up the fish stocks as well. And so if you have these whales running around eating the fish and eating the plankton, and you're fertilizing the, um, the algae blooms that feed all the plankton and the fish, and therefore the whales, you know, you, not only are, are you carbon negative, you know, you're solving global warming, but you're feeding the whales, helping the whale stocks come back, and then you've got your sustainable whale fishery. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know if that if that actually connects. You know, maybe maybe you'd have to fertilize slightly different things, or or I don't know. Maybe it loses. It's it's too inefficient. But this idea of kind of fertilizing wild ecosystems so that you can you can harvest from them more aggressively is is a fascinating idea to me. I'd love to kind of see more exploration of it. Right. Um, I mean, I've I've had some difficulty looking into this topic because um, basically there's there's nobody who will. Um, talk to you about the idea of farming whales. Uh, <laughs> talk to cetacean researchers. They they will say no, uh, that's impossible, or they won't respond to your email. Really, the only ones I've been able to talk to are uh, an American who's working sort of PR for the Japanese whaling industry, uh -huh. and a couple of scientists that he set me up with, who uh, sort of give some credit to the idea. Yeah, but but so you you could imagine maybe I mean. If, if some of these technical issues could be worked through, you can imagine sure. this this kind of like alternate future for Japan, where it's like Japan is kind of expansive again. It's got, it's it's mostly interested in claiming territory over the ocean um, and, and over therefore the fisheries in the ocean. It's got these systems of fertilization, of herding around, herding around the whales. You sort of have, you know, nuclear powered samurai navy uh, herding around these these whales and, and eating whales it's it's sort of uh like related to my my bison sphere uh, article it it's it's instead of it's a whale hemisphere because the pacific ocean you know is about half the world we're we're talking about kind of control over the pacific ocean raising tons of whales uh accelerating that it, it's it's the whale hemisphere uh as, as a solution to japan's problems so it's this i don't know it's this fascinating kind of vision this is what i thought was was so interesting about this idea was it 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 applies this idea of of kind of a regional uh human centric environmentalism to produce kind of this radically different idea for how a country could sustain itself and what it could be interested in um right i mean uh, this is environmentalism in one country again. Or in one in and one uh, ocean if, in this case <laughs> yeah in one ocean. and even if this idea is sort of beyond the pale or or technically unworkable within the next century i mean it i i hope it does point the direction and sort of um more uh doable mm -hmm. uh options along those lines right yeah i mean it, so it's it's this interesting example but there's these other ones right like like in you know we talked about north america what does environmentalism in one continent look like in North America in terms of, you know, restoring the bison range and, and planting trees and, and like greening the, the American West and all these things that could be done that that could make uh, make the continent much richer um, biologically speaking and, and, and therefore 
make the societies that 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 live on the continent much much stronger much healthier um so it's like this this idea environmentalism in one country is sort of this fascinating alternate paradigm to to the kind of globalist conservationist uh view it's all about limits and you know limits to growth limits to industry you right. have to put limits on on what man can do instead we're talking about this other alternate environmentalism that's more like no we don't have to coordinate the whole world it doesn't have to be this kind of tower of babel like unite the world thing it just has to be we're going to take our local environment our local environmental dependencies very seriously and build them up as a real source of power um so yeah i i feel like we're onto something here but it's it's still very early stage we haven't developed these 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 sort of ideas right. well enough yet i mean looking at north korea as an example is sort of cheating in a way um because you know if you look at the situation in the united states uh mr joe biden has 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 a new uh america the beautiful program uh it's a big big investment but in the end it's only you know a couple hundred million dollars it's supposed to be a billion in the end but it's it's a couple hundred a million is funded right now the idea is to have 30 percent um increase of 30 percent of protected land in the united states by 2030 it's it's quite modest mm -hmm. but it's it's almost undoable but also because, that's, that's uh, just this protected land right it's not it's not like right. cultivated or enriched or gardened it's it's that's just right. protected and and you know that there's all the you know i don't know how much what the other percentage of private land is i would guess 70 maybe 60 percent of of private land is just sort of untouched by the by the project mm -hmm. uh it's whereas north korea you can imagine, you can dream in North Korea, I tell you. <laughs> Are you a partisan of North Korea? Well, you know, the, the more, you know, I, I um, the, the more I know about North Korea, the more I'm convinced that that it will be there in in a hundred years. Yeah. And I'm not sure what else will be uh, there in a hundred years. Right. I mean, this is something actually we used to joke about in uh, the early days of Palladium, and I think even before Palladium. We used to look at the world and say, "Man, so many of these societies are in decline, or, or they don't make sense, or they're they're just kind of being swept along with the winds." The only countries that are likely to really survive over the long term are places like North Korea. <laughs> right. And, I mean, like, it, I, you know, they're, they're, it's interesting, right? It's they've got this kind of local, just totally their own little world going on in which they have basically a monarchy. They have you know, they're working on getting this environmental issue sorted out so that they're able to sustain themselves, even if the rest of the world undergoes crazy environmental problems. North Korea will still be, you know, chugging along, uh, fighting against against famine and floods and soil loss if, and so on in their own country. If you look at the food price crisis over the last year or so, uh -huh. um, North Korea is one place that has sort of weathered it as best as they can. Uh, food prices haven't gone insane or mm -hmm. there's been no riots over food because they are in sort of rebuilding under Kim Jong-un after the 1990s. They've, they've sort of figured out how to do it themselves, how to figure out how to exist without um you know imports from from russia um so yeah and i think i think america also we've we've seen on the modest 
uh, food issues and mostly relating to the inflation, as far as I understand. Um, and that's because, of course, America is a food-producing country, very, right. very independent. America the beautiful. <laughs> right. Well, um, this has been a little shorter than usual, but I feel like we've gotten through most of the discussion that I wanted to hit. I mean, there's some really fascinating ideas here, and, and I'd love to continue developing this stuff, this, this idea of, you know, whether it's, whether it's in North Korea or in the Pacific Ocean, and kind of environmentalism in one country or in one region. Like, what, is, what does the future look like that where powers or countries come to, like, see their own environmental health as, as paramount to their own, to their power and security? That, that seems, um, it's a very different way of looking at things than right now. Obviously, throughout history, there's been, there's been attention on that issue. Um, you get these countries like North Korea that, that have had to really develop thinking on it. But I guess part of the thesis is that with, with global warming and the acceleration of global industry and so on, um, we're reaching, reaching the limits of the ability to just kind of assume that the environment's going to be okay. And, and so we're probably going to see more of this kind of thing, more countries saying, hey, we actually have to take responsibility for our own, um, our own environmental affairs. I'm just really fascinated to see where it all goes. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that's what's coming. You know, if you see that this global project is breaking down and you want to, um, you, when you have a gun up against your temple, you'll take some steps to protect your, yourself. I hope. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, actually, the, that, that's one more thing that's interesting to discuss is the whole breakdown of the kind of global project. So, you know, obviously, through the Second World War and, and, and after the Second World War, there was kind of this big idea of the UN kind of like uniting the world as a, a monopolar world. Obviously, that fell apart quite quickly when Stalin didn't go along with it. Um, and, and I, that led to the Cold War. But even there, it's kind of like there's this sense, you know, maybe America and the Soviet Union will eventually converge. We'll get this unipolar kind of Star Trek future where everyone's kind of a communist and kind of a liberal. Um, and, and, and they're sort of just like one big federation. And that, that idea sort of came back into vogue in the 90s. Um, you know, obviously the, the fall of the Soviet Union back to this unipolar moment, we still have that kind of thinking coming out of, out of this, uh, you know, you mentioned the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, this kind of like World Economic Forum uh, consensus of, of the kind of Western elite that, that what should be done and what will be done is sort of this convergence, global convergence to a managed, planetary governance kind of future and i think we also see signs that this isn't working out it's kind of failing um you know obviously you have countries like china and russia trying to break out of this trying to go their own way you know north korea of course um as well though it's not a big example and and so you see you see this kind of tension from these countries that want to escape from this thing and and this recalls to me kind of the original Tower of Babel myth, where 
when you try to unite humanity in one big shared project, there are these confounding forces. There are things that the languages get confounded. People stop being able to talk to each other. And I sort of interpret that as like, in some ways, people stop wanting to talk to each other. They want to escape. They want to get out. All the, all the ambition within the system is to sort of dissolve the system and go your own way. And, and, and in some ways, like a political order can only really be sustained by an other. You know, there's some external threat. And so there's, there's, there's this tantalizing idea that maybe there will never be a unipolar order, at least not for any appreciable length of time. There will always be kind of this, this multipolar tendency as, as the different regions can't cooperate on things and the different countries can't, can't cooperate on things because they, they, they don't actually have enough to unite around. And, and if that's true, and if that's, that's kind of the underlying tendency of what we're seeing, then yeah, we are going to see kind of this fragmentation uh, on these issues, including environmental issues. We're going to see different countries pursuing their own interests in these things and, and those interests in some cases coming into conflict. I, like, it'll be interesting to see whether in the 21st century are there going to be wars or major diplomatic conflicts over um, issues of regional environmental management or planetary environmental management. Like maybe Russia wants global warming to continue and uh, India really doesn't. Right. I mean, um, the the situation right now with, with Europe facing a, a cold winter is sort of an interesting, um, interesting in this context uh, where you have the Europeans sort of tentatively groping towards solutions trying to see trying to figure out what it's what it's going to be should we restart our coal plants should we do nuclear again and um i think it's sort of a, a sort of a, a sort of a start to see uh, of environmentalism in one country in in the rest of the in in western europe mm -hmm. yeah i mean it, it'll be very interesting to see how they handle all of that and and how their kind of consciousness evolves in these things I think Europe had been very much playing the, the good global citizen uh, game for a long time. And uh, maybe they're now seeing that that's actually not going to work out for them. Europe needs to consider its own interests and in particular right. its energy and its energy. Interests. I think that's where that eco uh, theology comes in, in that um, telling the German people that you need to shiver this winter because of... Um, the Azov battalion is is bravely facing off against uh, Putin, and we need to suffer to to help these brave people. Is is not going? I I don't believe is going to to convince many people. Um, there's so there has to be some sort of um, alternative narrative to uh, to forcing people to shiver. Yeah, I mean in Europe it probably involves nuclear power, but they've they've got the the land management pretty well in in europe um compared to a lot of other places in the world all, all the forests or most of the forests are fairly well managed and the agricultural food production systems fairly well managed compared to say north america even um but the, the energy situation is really really rough trying to shut down all the nuclear plants and so on is not not going well for them anyways i think like i was saying that um 
this has been a shorter discussion, but I think a fascinating one, and it's covered a lot of uh, key ground. I'd love to continue developing these ideas, but let's wrap it up for now. It's been a great, uh, great time having you on. Thank you. All right. Let's figure out how to build the whale hemisphere. We'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.